Hello, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. This week, the Ringer is launching a new podcast feed called Boom Bust, a new hub for narrative podcasts documenting the rise and fall of companies, celebrities, and trends. Season one, hosted by our own Alyssa Bereznak, takes you through this spectacular journey of HQ trivia, the once $100 million industry-altering company turned disaster. Alyssa interviewed dozens of former employees, investors, journalists, and fans, bringing you the behind-the-scenes story of how HQ crumbled from within. Subscribe to Boom Bust HQ Trivia and check out the first two episodes out now on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode four of Behind the Billions. I'm Brian Koppelman. And this is David Levine. We're the showrunners and co-creators of Billions. And uh, we're going to talk about the show for a while. And then we are going to have Maggie Siff, the great legendary Maggie Siff, who plays Wendy Rhodes on the show. She'll be on to talk to us toward the end of the podcast. All right, Dave, let's get into it. Man, episode four, Dave, rewatching it. This is actually such a fun, good episode and sets up so much shit going forward. Yeah, man. Opportunity zone. And this is our opportunity zone to talk about it, Brian. Whoa. I think you might have to take this podcast yourself from there. That's that's a lot to handle coming from you. How much coffee did you have today, DJ? Just a little. Yeah. Just a little. Uh-huh. Well, it doesn't necessarily uh, doesn't necessarily seem like it. But yes, opportunity zone. Well, it was great. A lot of confluence of great stuff, actually, in, in, in this episode. And, and I don't know, do you have some stuff? Let's let, how do you want to start? What do you want to talk about first? Well, I mean, usually we start with script to screen, which is a great opportunity for you to remind me what we intended during the writing and shooting and how it actually all came out. Because I sure can't thing. remember any of it. Yeah. All right. I'll bring us back to Does anything. Uh, well, there's a few a things I think things that I wanted to say up for uh, uh, up front. Um, I think a bunch of stuff in this episode is stuff we'd wanted to do for a while before we even get to script to, to, to screen. Like we wanted to do real tennis for a while. Um, and it was great that we got to do that. We wanted to get another shark on the show. Uh, we'd been talking to Damon for a while about, uh, coming on the show that almost happened last season. Um, and so that was something that we, uh, got to, you know, have in the show that, that we'd wanted to, we'd wanted to tell Yonker's story for a long time. And we're finally starting to. Uh, get back to, you know, get to Axe's roots. There are things about that 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 are coming up. I don't want to spoil, but um, so that's something uh, also that I think really mattered. Um, we got to put a Motley Crue song in the show. So like, there's a bunch of stuff that I think had been- And even, stuff uh, even Dominique, because we had that great reference to him in season yeah. one. Yeah, exactly right. And I, and and it's funny, a lot of the time, the first episode out of the gate that the, t- the two of us, and, and oh, and- I mean, even though we'll talk about her, you know, r- one thing that I think is so great about having done this for a long time, this series, is people often, t- you know, we were able to bring someone along, like our coaching tree is starting to really, um, you know, you know, our coaching tree is starting to really be something. And um, Emily Hornsby started as our assistant and then worked her way up to writer's room assistant, where she was helping the writer's room organize itself. And, and writer's room assistant does a lot of creative stuff, too. And then she became a staff writer on the show at this season and co-wrote three episodes with, with us. And next season, she's story editor and, and, and she's going to write episodes herself. And getting to write an episode with Emily and, and actually t- takes her from someone who you know, started with a, by coming to 
a job interview to be our assistant and now is writing episodes with us feels amazing to me. And she killed it too. Yeah, it was really fun working with her and she did such a great job. And, you know, last season when she was, I guess, well, even the season before as our assistant, I think we gave her an opportunity to write a couple of small things like some off-camera stuff or something for a brochure that played on screen or something like that. And we were immediately struck by like, wow, you know, this, she writes snappy stuff. This could work. Yes. I think we weren't sure as to whether she would write the show because her natural taste and stuff is slightly different. And we read some of that, you know, uh, you know, her upbringing yes. was very different from like the New York financial world. Yes. But then last season as the writer's room assistant, she started writing more and she needed to write a couple of bits that were sort of playing in the background and they were hilarious. And I think then we both knew like, you know, she can do this and she certainly didn't disappoint. I mean, stuff of hers stuck in this episode in such a great way, really standout stuff. So I agree. That was super fun. Uh, so that was a big deal uh, for us in terms of something that's, uh, there's a bunch, there's a bunch more stuff, which I'm sure we'll get to that was like, you know, we wanted to do an episode where, where Harry Lennox got to do a lot more since season one. Um, where we really incorporated him into the story in a bigger the gentleman, way. The gentleman who plays Franklin Sacker. Yes, great Harry how, yes yeah. the great Harry Lennox. And then for, for me personally, we'll get to this with the music. Um, the Katie Lang, Neil Young song is just something that means the world to me. That was one of my favorite albums of all time. And, you know, we were searching and searching for something in that spot. And originally, and you said to me, you were like, I think we should, should we put a song in that spot? And, and, and yeah, the original, the temp score there was score from something, but it felt like the right kind of song would be like what they were playing and had the right mood and took us across the whole thing. And then and, you came, you came up with it. Well, yeah, but that was, yeah, but it was great. I remember you were like, should we have a song there? And then suddenly I remember saying to the music editor, grab this album, uh, hymns and, uh, of the 49th parallel, but it was something that, that that album has meant it just means the fucking world to me. It's like one of the 50 albums I listened to the most in my lifetime, I think. And, um, and then the chance to get to have a Neil Young song and sung by Katie Lang. So this episode for, for us, I think is a big deal and, um, has a lot of stuff that we, we, we really cared about. I'll say Dave, the script to screen, if we want to segue into that, um, a huge thing changed. I mean, the whole idea of this episode started and this is about the way in which you have to sometimes be nimble uh, and deal with disappointment in the job of uh, running a show like this. Is um, The whole idea for the episode started with you and I having this idea that Axe and this kid are on a roof of the house Axe grew up in at night. Um, and they're sitting on a roof alone. And you don't know why Axe is sitting with this young kid. Right. Looking out yeah. over Yonkers. Looking out over Yonkers as it's daytime into night. And, and, um, yes, the realities of budgets and, well, the and, winter, it was as much yeah. budget, but it was also, we might have made the argument if it was merely the budget. In fact, we were in the middle of making the argument. Well, no, but the, but the reality of the production issues backed us into a budget issue, right? Yeah. Because, because you tell it, tell it. Yeah. So, tell it. So we wanted them up on the roof. It was going to be freezing. It's very hard for actors to play a long scene and be outside for hours and sort of stay focused on, on their work. Then we got a lot of pushback as far as sort of like 
Well, would you say legality or just the potential danger of putting a no? Well, a I mean, young as soon as anyone raised roof, it, well, we had a flat roof, but they said like even a flat roof, you guys, we'd have to put a harness on the actor, and, and then we'd and have we, to rotoscope out the harness, and then we had an idea that we would try to recreate the roof and green screen the city around them, and that's where the budget problems started to kick in. We were going to do it on a stage, and so then. Um, and sometimes we'll push one of those things, not for say, as soon as the safety issue comes up, then it's like, well, yeah, of course we got to put the kid in a harness. Let's do that. But it'd be hard to act that scene. You know, we don't want to put a young actor in a scene where suddenly he's wearing a harness. And then if, if the whole show is worried about his safety, then the, then the kid is going to start worrying about his safety and then not be, and, and the kid's amazing. Achilles, a great actor and crushed it in this role. Um, but uh, so then we had to reconceive sort of very late in the process, not even knowing, by the way, if Akili could play hoop, just hoping we, we sent the question and, and got back the answer. Yes, but actors will lie about that kind of thing all the time. <laughs> I remember once you and I were making a show and an actor assured us he was great at playing football. And then the two of us beat him and an ex-college football player in football. <laughs> he was so bad. Yes, he'd never played before. It was clear. And, and he didn't know how to throw or catch or even which way to run once he had the ball. But Akili <laughs> Achille is, is skilled though. So that was fine. And it's amazing. Cause like he also was, uh, he's shown us, he's very skilled at lots of different stuff. So we had to reconceive that scene and we had to think about what, how Axe and this kid would come together, what they'd be doing. And luckily we thought of this basketball thing and and then it tied into the bigger thematic of the show. And now it feels like we're, we very consciously um, juxtaposed the way that Akili was playing basketball and the way Axe was with Prince and Dominique Wilkins at this super upscale gym. That wasn't originally the intention, but as soon as we realized we could do it, we thought, oh, this just deepens and makes it cooler and better. And it's great when Axe and it's like, so through trying to solve this problem, we actually came up with something that serves the story better, serves it the made characters more, yeah, better. It made more sense somehow, got more direct in the storytelling. So that seems like the biggest difference in the script to screen thing. And then one thing we didn't know for sure was whether we'd be able to make the Dominique basketball thing work. We just put it in the script. I remember we wrote Dominique and asked him and he said, yes, but that you know, easily could have not worked out. And then it was wonderful that it, it was able to work out and, you know, just, just terrific. I'm, I'm just trying to see if there's anything else that we thought we were going to do. No, I think that the opening in, is really the main thing that, that, shifted from script to screen. Yeah. But then the, the things that we had intended from the beginning came together in an interesting way. And you mentioned it before that we wanted, we wanted, you know, Damon on the show, we want another shark, but specifically Damon. And we'd been talking in the room oh, about yeah, these opportunity awesome. zones. You know, this administration had developed this program supposedly to benefit, um, downtrodden neighborhoods. It would give tax incentives to wealthy developers to come in and inject a bunch of money and build projects in these um yeah. in these sort of forgotten areas and, and like sort of pump their economies back up and you know do all this wonderful stuff. Of course, the flip side of that is a lot of these developers started grabbing up the tax incentives and like sort of doing better than everybody else did out of the deal. And we we'd been talking about it in the room around the time when Damon came in to do a room visit and he, maybe he saw it up on the wall or we asked him directly. And he told us that he'd been approached directly to be sort of like a community liaison to many of these things. And he knew exactly how and why they wanted to use him 
to try to make their project go smoothly. And we just thought it was so incredible. Oh, yeah. He said to directly to us, he said they just want a brown face. I mean, Damon John said they want a brown face who's a business success. And he just directly said that to us. And and in fact, in, in, in tying into script to screen, uh, the a difference is on the day, Damon's, in fact, Damon's such a professional that a week before he came in to shoot, he wrote a text to us and he said, there are a couple of lines I'd like to add that you guys couldn't write as white writers, but that I can say as a black man, and would it be okay? And we, he showed them to us. We said, yes. And so that scene is a combination of our lines and Damon's lines, um, because he, there are a couple of very specific ways that he explained the thing that, um, that he he's right. We wouldn't have written, and he was able to translate our message. So yeah, and that that was awesome to us because it gave so much authenticity and reality to this. Yeah, it really um, it was great having him. And it's great when when somebody who's sort of doing a cameo like that can bring something that they've lived. Also, it, he's so comfortable in front of the camera. That's another great thing. You know, the sharks have so many hours in front of the camera that they don't get nervous. No, he didn't seem nervous at all. He seemed to be enjoying himself a lot, which was great. And I'm sure you saw online, we have another shark who's a huge fan of the show, Dave. It turns out Lori Grenier is a great, huge fan of the show. So I did. I, don't I, know. Saw, I saw a tweet about that and loved it. Fantastic. Maybe, maybe season six. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Maybe we gotta get it, we'll get them all on someday. Um uh because uh and you know, uh, Mr. Cuban obviously is a big part of the uh a big part of the fabric of the show. Always an honorary member of the uh, of the Billions cast. Absolutely. And then coming back to um, direct this one was Lori Collier. She directed a great episode from last season. And, um, you know, yes. she's got a really, really special ability to get um, these performances out of, you know, not only the actors who, who are like the core players who are great all the time, but the guest stars, you know, it's, it's amazing, um, you know, it's hard to see exactly how it comes together, but but these performances are really, really strong. Yeah, Lori's a terrific independent filmmaker and um, really solid job on this episode. And the episode really came together uh, in- incredibly, incredibly well and had to do a variety of things, right? Had to shoot the basketball stuff with Neek, had to shoot these complicated three-person scenes, which are hard, had to figure out how to stage that scene with Maggie and uh, Frank Grillo, Tanner. And um, that stuff is is challenging, and it 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 did uh, really end up coming together. What else about shooting the episode? I, I, I want to talk about Corey, because Corey's not a basketball player, and he had to get himself in a place where he was ready to stand there and play basketball with Dominique Wilkins. Yeah, well, he, I mean he's such a professional that he really likes to prepare. So I remember, you know, he was doing this Shakespeare play around the time when he was going to come and, and do the show. And he immediately started to, um, to like work out with a trainer because he knew that his character was, uh, an ex standout athlete and he wanted to be, had the physicality of a former athlete. So he got into great shape. And when, the idea of this basketball thing, you know, we knew the character had this basketball background. We weren't positive how we were going to deploy it in the show this season, but when we figured it out, he immediately started training. I mean, he was training down at that gym where we shot. 
Yeah, exactly. With He was training with professional basketball trainer and he really got himself into a place where he's credible on the court. And I was thrilled about that because, you know, you and I are longtime basketball fans and play ball. And, and if someone didn't look like they could do it, it would really suck. So it's great that he really does, um, you know, it's clear he can do it. And, and this reminded me of one other thing about, um, Dave, the writing of the episode, which is when we first um, had written the episode and even at the table read, we did not have the final scene between Prince and Axe. And that scene, I think, is a definitive scene of the season and really sets it up. And I remember we left the table read, you and I, and um, had a conversation about how to make it really clear what happened at the end of the episode and wanting a moment where Mike Prince sort of says that stuff to Axe as a way to really solidify this rivalry between them, a sort of surrender that takes the higher ground at the same time. Yeah. We had this idea that Axe arrived at this place where he realized he, he couldn't go in and he wanted to get out of there and escape his past and his roots and everything. But it was like a little bit too elliptical in a way. And having the nemesis sort of say it, say you're from there, you stink of it. And you know, you win, I give yeah. it to you because I don't fit there. You know, as he's standing in, in front of one of the most magnificent places in the world to shoot, which is right in front of Lincoln Center, the guy's wearing a tuxedo, Axe is in this very humble place that he did everything in his life in a way to escape. It was great to drive it home and put it I on remember you and I that texting way. about it that on a couple, like we were texting back and forth on what that could be and how to make it land and where it could take place. And like the way... I don't know. I, I, it was great the way that we kept chasing it down because there was something about this that didn't feel finished in the writing. And then it was like, why doesn't it feel finished? And, you know, that um, that's one of the things when people ask a lot of the time writing questions, like one of the things I think that separates people who are able to do this professionally is not letting yourself, if you have that feeling that something's not done yet, that it's not quite right, like even if you don't quite have the answer, just continuing to chase after it until it kind of satisfies that place in you. And I think like, we really did that on li this episode. Living in that place of discomfort rather than yeah. just like closing it in your head and going, oh, it's done, it's fine. Yeah, because you're up at night. I mean, I remember being up at night after that, like just being like, what the fuck? And, and us texting and solving it together. And and that, yeah, living in that place of discomfort of exactly right. It was just being like, man, this isn't quite landed yet. This isn't nailed. And and then I remember I wasn't well, it's, you know, as, as, un, as bad as that, place is, it's better than the other place of discomfort, which is after you've let the opportunity go by and it's shot and finished and aired, and then you realize that something is missing. That's the kind of discomfort that's not going away. Well, that was that we learned that lesson on the first show we ever made tilt where there were a couple episodes that got away from us in that way. And I think on billions, we've worked really hard not to let it get away from us, but yes. on, but, but I, I, I'll say, um, that night, I had to be somewhere else the night of the Lincoln Center shoot that, that we shot that Lincoln Center thing. And you went by set and you were there. And I remember um, texting you and being like, is it going to do what we think it's going to do? And you just, your answer was sending me back a picture of Corey with Lincoln Center behind him. And you were like, I think we're good. And uh, I remember looking at that picture and being like, oh man, that's going to be awesome. And um, for me, it really does. It's very satisfying to see what Corey gave to that because you know, as we talked about last week, Corey, the way Corey found this character who used to go on this podcast, but he just really is so locked into the character and, and, and just nailed that, that speech to Axe, I think just crushed it, you know? Absolutely. Should we, uh, should we talk crew superstar? 
yeah, let's do it. I, it's funny. You brought this guy's name up and I don't even think of him as a member of the crew. I think of him as family and I think of him as like a lifesaver to us on a regular basis. And this is, um, Mr. Mike Harrop, a guy we've worked with for a very long time in different capacities. Um, he is a producer on the show. Co-executive co- producer. Co-executive producer. Um, he has been the post producer on the show for seasons before this. But Mike is somebody who is dog in his, dogged in his work ethic. He shows up at call and stays until rap every day of the shoot. He has a deep understanding of what we're looking for out of the show tonally. So his presence on the set as he's a liaison between the directors, um, the ADs, production and the actors really sort of like all the areas of the production and us, it allows us to break free at times to go do other things, whether it be writing episodes or being in the editing room. It's, um, you know, it's an amazing benefit that he gives us. And he's somebody who will fight for things to be right on set, even if we're not there for some reason. He is, um, yeah, the thing about Mike, First of all, let's not bury the lead. He is a Canadian. <laughs> okay, and, let's not bury that. But why is that the lead? Well, it's the lead because uh, his manner, Mike's as smart as anybody who walks onto his set, but he has no need to prove it to you. Most of us New Yorkers, we want to constantly, and most of the sets, a lot of New Yorkers who are pretty pretty sure that everyone needs to know how smart they are. And um, Mike Harrop uh, has no need. to. He just, he just is unbelievably competent. I guess I also want to make fun of the back bacon and the Molson's and the whiskey, <laughs> but, uh, which, but, but the truth is that guy, man. So yeah, you talk, his job is he's creative non-writing producer, which means he's there on set to safeguard the tone, uh, spirit of the show creatively. And it's a very challenging gig because you have to find a way to communicate to everybody, safeguard our vision, make the thing better while making sure everybody is willing to and wants to um, entrust you with their secrets, insecurities, difficulties. You have to find a way to handle and manage the directors and the cinematographers and the producers who are worried about the budgets. And Harrop does it in a way that he's completely beloved and everybody thinks he's on their side. Um, And he is on everybody's side because all he cares about is making the show great and making it um, as close to what our vision of it is as, as possible. And he's Canadian. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. You know, before, before we go on to the references and all that, I, I actually caught a couple of like viewer questions on Twitter that I think we should answer. And I think yeah. you'll like them. So some guy named Adam asked, uh, who do we use to make sure our market information is accurate? Ah, uh, the great Josh Brown. Yeah. Downtown Josh Brown, the reform broker. He's a, a brilliant Wall Street personality. He he runs an investment company and he's also a CNBC personality on various shows. We run all the outlines and the scripts by him and we talk about various business aspects and he can give us like veracity checks on dialogue when we need it. So he's a great resource. Occasionally we'll talk to you know, real hedge fund founders and other people in the business, but he's like our main guy these last couple seasons and he's invaluable. And then 
the other one, and this one's like a little bit um, melancholy now, how do we pick the restaurants and bars we use? Ah, yes. Mm. Well, uh, if you've seen a picture of me uh, <laughs> back the way I looked six months ago, that'll give you some insight into the way we cover the New York dining scene. You know what I mean, Dave? Well, we yeah, we pick the places we love and also a lot of the people you have close personal friendships with many, many of the chef owners of these places. Well, yeah, you know, living in New York City and um, as long as I have, you decamped for the suburbs at some point and I stayed in the city. And as a result of that, I just eat out at these places a lot. And I've become, I respect, so yes, I love restaurateurs and chefs and I think what they do is impossibly hard and it, I, putting so much effort into something ineffable, something that disappears, a plate of food, it just blows my mind the way that their their focus and commitment when they're at the highest levels. And so, yeah, when David Chang opened Momofuku however many years ago now, 14 years ago or something, it really changed my focus about what's possible in restaurants. And I started getting to know all these guys. And then as always happens in our lives, Dave, since we've been best friends since we were little kids, is whenever one of us is into something like that, we drag the other guy along. So you've come to know a lot of these people too. And, um, and so we we're constantly in a dialogue with the community of people who are incredibly food savvy and restaurant savvy in the city. And we're really aware of the social dynamics of how and where people of power go, what it means to go to a certain restaurant, um, why you would go to a certain place. And so that's, I mean, it all folds into this question. And, um, I've been thinking a lot of, as you, I'm glad you brought it up, like a lot about these friends of mine. I talked to them all about, you know, the, the challenges that they're facing right now. And I'm just rooting really hard for them to, uh, that we all get to the other side of this and that they find a way to relaunch their businesses successfully. Yeah. Agreed. It's, it's really hard to think about, um, what they're going through and uh, yeah, I hope it ends soon and they can all come back and swing their doors open, get back to a sense of normalcy. Um, episode references, you mentioned court tennis. But court tennis is so fascinating. We should get into it more. All right, let's talk about it, David. Listen, I got to say, uh, I may have brought the Katie Lang song to the episode, but you had court tennis as a thing you wanted to bring to the show for a long time. Okay, I'm not sure if that's true, but I mean, that's a funny thing to say, so I'll take you don't, it. Is that, you know, you, I've been you, carrying you, that around? Well, yeah, because when Damien told us about, no, what it was was Damien had told us about court tennis and I, real tennis, and we started joking about it. Yes, but I think you, I think you like the idea of Damien playing it for some reason. Well, I, I always, loved it too, but you yeah. would bring it up, like you would just bring it up more than I would bring it up. I think I, I always love when uh, one of the actors has a special skill yeah. that we become aware of that we can exploit. Like you know when when Rudy um, sings oh, the opera, best. you the know best. because we knew that the actor actually was a former opera singer, and you know we seen Damien play tennis and he was amazing. And we got to put that on its feet. He played with Sharapova last season, but he did tell us that during his time in New York, he played some court tennis in these little enclosed spaces, like the original game of tennis as was created in the court of, uh, Henry the eighth or something many centuries ago in England. And I think in France somewhere at a chateau, um, it was great to put that out there. I don't think any of us still understand exactly how it's played. Um, we shot. No, that up. there's a, 
No, it's like a made-up. It yeah. feels like a made-up game to me. Yeah, you got to hit this net in a window. Yeah, because suddenly hit it off like the a roof re- or not hit it off the <laughs> roof. Something. Suddenly there's like a regular point, and then Damien goes, and also, if you're able to hit it past the guy into this little window past the court, that's it's a googie-goggie. Yeah, you're like, what? What do you mean? What are you talking about? But yeah, no, it's uh, it was great, and and uh, to get that in the show, um, the only reference that matters. To, I mean, we should talk about all of them, but I mean, the fact that we got. Uh, Jerry into the show. Now that's going to be mystifying to all, but like three people watching the show, <laughs> I sent it to one, our special, I did send it to our special friend today. Yes, rightly uh, so. I mean, we can talk about that movie. Yeah. Let's talk about it, man. So I don't even know what year it was in the early two thousands. Way before I think. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 Yes. 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 Matt Damon and Casey Affleck went out with uh, Gus Van Sant and made this this quirky little movie called Jerry where these characters go on a hike and very strange things unfold. 2000 ought to. Okay. And, uh, you know, they sort of use the word Jerry in many ways. It might be their characters' names. They refer to each other as it. When one of them fucks up badly, they call it Jerrying something. And that's how it really stuck for us. Whenever either one of us has screwed something up really badly and we have to admit it, we often say that we jerried the thing. Ah, uh, shit, I jerried the draft or I jerried the meeting. Yeah, we do. So to, so to have Taylor come in and admit that they jerried the meeting and have everybody understand exactly what they're talking about. In the room, very, that, that all the yes. characters understand it. Very well, satisfying. It was, and I did I did send it to Matt today. I was just like, hey, you're gonna need, he's in Ireland. And I was like, you gotta, you're gonna, you're gonna wanna watch this clip. Uh, but I didn't tell him. I didn't tell him why. Uh, we got a bunch of stuff in. I mean, we got the Pillsbury Doughboy credit to Emily Hornsby. We got uh, we got something in that we've carried around a lot. We got Victor Maitland in there, Dave. Yep. Wrecking the buffet at the Harrow Club. Very important to us to get Victor Maitland in there. Uh, yep. But the great Steve, I'll say just Stephen Burkhoff, defining movie villain to the two of us. He was incredible. And Jonathan Banks, a guy we thought was so talented as a heavy, had a little bit of a fallow period, but came roaring back in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Yeah, he plays the right-hand man to uh, Victor Maitland, played by Burkhoff. But Burkhoff, it was an incredible one-two punch that Burkhoff got to be the heavy in Cop and then the heavy in Rambo. Yeah, I mean, a great little run by him. Something that Bill Simmons would talk about. A great yeah. mini, a great mini nephew, run. A guy nephew Kyle, up. nephew Kyle, you gotta get, you gotta get him to, you gotta get him to do that, man. To talk about, to talk about, <laughs> to talk about Stephen Burkhoff's incredible two movie run, where he was like, seemed like he was going to be the bad guy in Hollywood for the next ten years, and then that was it, two and out. Um, yeah, like a is, John Paxson kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah, it seemed like it seemed like it was going to go forever. Any other refs we, you think we have well, to cover? Well, I think we I think we should jump out of refs and get into guest cast because there's such an epic piece of guest cast in this that we have to talk about. Oh my gosh, I talk about something that we'd had years trying to make yeah. happen. But you know, we can we can move quickly through a couple of the people that visited me, you know, good comparable Dominique Wilkins to have him in the show. Um and you didn't let him come for free, did you, Brian? There was a little bit of time in between setups. Wow. When- you're, yes, it's thank you. Uh, yeah, this is true. Dominique and I played a short game of horse and I beat him. 
and uh, there were witnesses, and 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 he's acknowledged it on Twitter. The truth is, he made me play him double or nothing. And in the second game, he stood at half court and just made you know five shots in a row and just put me out. <laughs> but I did vanquish him in the first game. I surprised him. I made a lot of. I've been preparing my whole life. I'm a, I'm a really good horse player, and I uh, I one hand I just shot a one handed set shots from just inside the three point line, and I just mowed him down, man. Both, a lot of witnesses. Both halves of, of that two-parter were fascinating to watch. I mean, it was incredible watching you just like come out of the gate hot. I was sitting by Video Village watching. I was like, oh my God, he's he's hitting and Dominique's missing. And I was like, then actually you played pig. The truth is you played pig because I was like, well, is this going to last? I didn't know if the three letters ah, were yeah, only yeah. part of the way there, but then I saw it was over and I was like, they played pig and it's over. And then I watched you try to fight off the rematch. I tried really hard not to have a rematch. I knew I couldn't win the second match. Yeah, it was sad. He dragged you in. And and when he dropped back, I was just like, oh my God, that was very impressive. I mean, he was shooting it like like he was at the free throw line, but it was- It was crazy. It was crazy half court. He just went boom, boom, boom. And and I was so adrenalized from win. Like the truth is, I was so adrenalized from winning that that I I was like done. Like I was like, there was no chance also- I mean, I just can't shoot from half court. I mean, that was a crazy, that was an insane thing to witness. <laughs> and he's the greatest guy on earth. I just think we got to say like, that guy is a win, an unbelievable winner. He's won in life. He won at basketball. He's an incredibly charitable dude. He's always doing something for somebody else. And um, what a great spirit he brought to the show. What a joy to have him on the show. It was really awesome. Just awesome. Dominique Wilkins. as they All on day. The show. All day. Then he, then he added all day for some reason, Frank Hartz, and it was hilarious. It was the best episode. In season back in season one. All right, go ahead. Keep going. Um, let's see. Tony Yazbek came back as Mark Caparello. That was very fun. Alex Wagner, the power journo from the circus, was yes. in the back filming a piece on Mike Prince during the Yonkers um, presentation. Was that all we'll see from her? Who knows? I don't we'll know. We'll see. We'll see. Um, Danny Master Giorgio came back as Ike to, to support the, always happy to see Ike, the axe roots, but there was one person in this episode who's entered into the show. We've been wanting to work with for a long time. Juliana Margulies. We, when was the first time we had a meeting with her? Three years ago. I think three years ago. And, oh no, well, no, the first time we had a meeting with her was 11 or 12 years ago for a movie and it just didn't quite come together. And we were like, Holy shit, Juliana Margulies. Can you imagine getting to work with her? She's one of the all-time greats. And then three years ago, we or four, three and a half years ago, we started talking about her being in Billions. Yeah. I mean, she's somebody that's always busy because if she goes on a TV show and she, you know, she's the lead, that show is going to go as long as she's willing to keep going. The networks will never take her off the air. She's done, she's done like 50 years worth of being the lead of network TV shows, even though she's not even close to that old. Yeah, she's an incredible, and and she came in in just the perfect spirit and just crushed every scene she was in. And I, we were, it was one of those, hey, we're pinching ourselves. We got Juliana Margulies to come be a guest on our show. So fantastic. Yep. Uh, career goal, life dream. And speaking of special guests, Ah, we have a special yes. guest coming up to join well, us. Well, yeah. Dave, this has been great. Everybody, we're going to interview Maggie Siff, and uh, then we will see you next week. Hey, Dave, this got way more exciting just now. 
much, <laughs> much more exciting. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Maggie Siff is joining us. Hi, Maggie. Hi, guys. It's so nice to see you and talk to you. Great Don't seeing you. You're not going to stare at us, are you? Because if you stare, we might have to <laughs> compromise all of our ideals. <laughs> well, I'll do my best. I'll look away. <laughs> all right. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Rewatching that. Was that scene a fun thing to do? Like when you read that, how much did you pray for? Because watching it over today, uh, I found it awesome and hilarious to watch. You talking about the big coaching scene? With Frank yeah. Grillo? With Tanner? I mean, because this is, yeah, this is like a tour de force episode for Maggie. I mean, she's an all-star in every episode, but if you look at the list of scenes in this episode from the, like the big mediation scene between Taylor and Axe, um, that dinner with, with her and Axe, and then, you know, into that coaching scene, this is just It was perfect. funny to watch the episode again. I, for, I forgot how many pieces of the puzzle I was sort of a part of for the episode. It all becomes such a big life blur, you know, over time and with the time that's passed. But yeah, it was, it was a, it was really, it was a super fun episode to do. And um, that scene in particular was so great because I, I don't feel like we've seen Wendy in like full on coaching mode with sort of like every bit of herself being used for a while. So it was, it was really great to do that in, in such a different environment with such a different kind of human specimen. Yes, um, totally. It was really, it was super fun to do and to re-engage those parts of the character and also feel the way they shift the character and to come up against, you know, somebody like that who's, you know, as strong and sort of imposing in his own way as all these other dudes that she spends that kind of time with, but in a, in a very different way, you know, with, with very different ideals and very different goals and, you know, a creative mindset. I think it, I think for the character, it was very like, very interesting and enlivening. And for me too, it was fun. Yeah. When, um, I remember a conversation we had, I think toward the end of last season where you made some, a little bit of like, not in a, um, not in any sort of a way that was like demanding or anything, but you mentioned something about not having tapped into the coaching thing. And I don't even think we were consciously aware of it when we wrote that scene, but I, I do know that there was like a hunger in all three of us to have Wendy get to do the thing that makes her in the professional capacity so special beyond just acts, beyond just being able to get the best out of acts. But like when we first meet Wendy with Danzig, she, you know, that first scene you audition, she's doing this thing. Yeah. And it was great to see the way it has evolved, stayed true to what she is, but then evolved in, in this other, in this other context. Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of storytelling, we've moved her more into like the cent the center of Axe Cap and its workings in her sort of desire to feel as central to the enterprise as she feels, and also to shore it up in all these different ways, because there've been all these compromises to, to the enterprise along the way. And she's the person who can do that. She can play a lot of different roles. I mean, that's one of her great strengths as a human being is she can step into all these different roles. She's a great role player. <laughs> no, that's for um, sure. You know, but to see her go back to that place that it, it i mean i think i you you can tell me but for me story wise it also feels like 
Wendy returning to the the center of her being, you know, in terms of storytelling and character, like her also reconnecting with herself in a in a deeply meaningful way and in her attempt to make meaning and find meaning and do things for herself, it sort of seems connected to that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I remember being on set that day and before the rehearsal and realizing like, wow, this is a lot of material. This is so difficult. Like we've really put this on Maggie here. Yes. And then watching you right from the first blocking rehearsal, just like step into that rhythm of that part of the character i was like oh my god the master maggie sith <laughs> well you know first of all he is he's so present like frank is he's like an extremely present actor um and so you know from the moment we started rehearsing the scene i was like oh this is gonna be okay like um we we felt very responsive to each other like immediately and um and he's he's kind of a different kind of actor than i think we often have on the show like he's a little bit more i mean the show's pretty stylized and it's pretty big and we have a lot of theater actors and he feels to me like a quintessential film actor you know yes. like like super super subtle and nuanced and he kind of feels around in these moments um, whereas the style of our show is often a little bit more bullish and decisive. Yes. And um, so, uh, but I thought I was like a great different kind of energy. Yeah, because part show. of why we cast Frank, right, is that he brought as this artist, even though he's also like very manly the way a lot of the dudes are, he brings this other quality that's separate from the way the Axe guys are all like sort of using this this very sort of hyper side of their brain, this like hyper intellectual, yeah. verbally dancey side of their brain. And we wanted someone who's like, yeah, I'm smart too, but I don't have to fucking do any of that. I can do this other thing. And so, yeah. it, it, and have you play off of that seemed really worthwhile. But I have a question I, I hadn't thought of before from something you just said, which is um, the way you don't really, you know, David and I, because we have to then edit each episode and and think about them as these mini stories to tell the bigger story it always just slots into episodes for me. Like I keep the whole season arc obviously in my head, but for you as an actor, is it, it, it really just lands for you as like sort of over this period of time, over this series of episodes, this is, this is what's happening for Wendy, as opposed to really being in discrete in your memory in discrete episodic chunks. Well, in my memory, I would say for every episode, when I think back on an episode, I can remember one or two scenes or moments, you know, there's like, it's kind of like the way memory works. There are these like nodes that are kind of heightened that you go back to. But in general, once I'm done filming the season, yeah, it all becomes a big kind of wash of life and arc. And I, you know, I can't, I can't place a lot of it to us. I can't pin a lot of it to specific episodes. That's so funny. That's so different than, right, Dave? I immediately am just like, yeah. oh, well, that was 401. Because that was, that was <laughs> right. 206. Even now, I could, because like of the way we have to, like you have to engage yeah. in a way where you become Wendy for this like long period of time. And, and Dave and I have to think about like, shit, there's 
you know, three beats too many in that scene. And what, like, like we yeah. have to, it's, it's a fascinating, we're working totally together. Yeah, go ahead. What were you going to say? I often, well, I often think of acting as being a combination of like hard brain, soft brain, you know, like there's a part of you that needs to just like really not let your brain do too much work and become kind of mushy <laughs> so that like things can come up and, and, and move you and you're not locking yourself in and so i think in in memory you know that's part of why it becomes kind of mushy and fluid for all of us we're all like that you know when people say you know we're going to talk about this episode all of the actors are like which episode do you mean <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like get, we get a little stoned about it because it's uh yeah it's just like a big river you know when uh when i wanted to ask you this for a while when did you know that you had something as an actor or that you were going to make it when when did you feel at the beginning of your career that it was going to happen for you, that you had, you know, you had a handle on this thing. Uh, there are so many, um, I feel like all those things happen incrementally. I mean, I remember being in college and reading um, a recommendation that my college theater professor wrote for me. And there was a line in it where he said, I have no doubt that Maggie will be a presence in the American theater. Wow. And I read That's that cool. sentence and I was like, really? You know, I, I sometimes feel like when you're young, you, you like, you need other people to reflect these things back to you that then give you footing to go forward. And I didn't, I didn't have that sense about myself, but having that said about me was incredibly empowering, you know? And I don't, I don't, you know, so, but that's just like the first step, right? Like making it in what sense? I mean, in what sense do you really mean that? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think at that sense, I was like, oh, I could have a career. Yeah. That's what I meant when you knew, not, not, to, not talking about yeah. external accolades or anything, but like when you felt, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that's amazing. And I was wondering, you know, as an actor, when you got, um, the stuff for, for the first audition for, for Wendy, did you get the whole script or did you just get the scenes? It's funny when I got the script, like I had, my daughter was, um, maybe six months old and, uh, and I was, I was sort of sitting at home and I was like, I don't know if I'm an actor anymore. Like I was so deep into being a parent and I was like, I'm not going to work for a while. And I just couldn't imagine shifting gears again like I just couldn't imagine pretending to be somebody else I was just like I don't know it was so it was such a deep internal moment for me and then when I got the script I think I read half of it the before I went to sleep and I read the next half the next morning so I went to bed thinking Wendy Rhodes was one thing and I woke up and read the rest and realized she was something else because it's not re revealed until the very end that she's were, the dom. Were you not going to audition until the whole thing was like, were you going to pass you, until you read that or were you already going to uh, audition? Oh no, I was, I was super into, I was into it. I, I was really excited about it. And it was because re reading it, I, I was like, it was the first thing that really stirred me again. I was like, Oh, I, I want to do this. Like I could, I could do this, you know, like it was the first thing that woke up my, um, my senses and my creative 
uh, feelings again. And, and I knew, I knew that I was going to go for it, but it was, it was the first thing I auditioned for in like a year, you know, it was the first thing that I really put myself out there for. Well, it was, it was certainly the last audition for that role that we needed to watch as well, we've, <laughs> we've talked about it many times as soon as we saw it. <laughs> it's so sweet. I felt, yeah, I felt creaky. I mean, I was like, I was really, it was, it was exciting to work on something again, because like I said, I didn't, I didn't know if I was going to, if anything would catch me and t- lead me back there. If anything would pull me out of my cocoon, I guess. Yeah. Season five is such a big deal in, in the way the mythology of all this stuff goes, right? When you get, and so it's made me sort of nostalgic about all this stuff. And, and as I've thought back on it, cause I mean, you said the other day in, in a thing we did together, Maggie, you were like, when a show starts to get to the back stretch and it's true, even if we make eight seasons of the show, we're at the, you know, we have less than halfway to go. And, um, I was thinking again about what that was like to see that audition, but more than that, just so there was the surprise of seeing the audition and knowing, okay, we have the person who can make the show with us. But it also gave both Dave and me, you know, when you then came to New York and we did a proper audition together, I remember leaving that with David and both of us going like, okay, we're going to have a show. Like, we're really going to be able to make this. Like, And it was, um, I, I wonder for an actor, and for you in particular, do you get a spidey sense about this stuff? Like, was there somewhere along the way where you thought early on, oh, this might, this might kind of redefine where I am in the, like, this might be, this might be the next bunch of years of my existence. I think when I came to New York and read with Paul and you guys, I I think I had that feeling. It was very, um, it was very scary and it was very exciting to do. I mean, I got on the plane with my baby and my husband, because like I say, I wasn't leaving my cocoon. And then suddenly I was flying to New York and getting into fancy clothes and pretending to be this like incredibly confident, you know, monster of a woman. Um, And it was hard. It was a hard thing to do, but I knew that I had to do it. And, um, and then, you know, as that day went along and just talking to you guys and then working with Paul and reading with John Carroll Lynch, who was reading the Axe character that day for us, um, I, it just it just all felt so exciting and interesting and rich. And and Paul is like, I mean, he's a dear friend now. Like he's such an amazing human being and an amazing actor. And I just knew I knew that would work. You know, like I was like, oh, this will work. And um, yeah, it felt it felt really exciting. I mean, I felt, I felt it that day also. Yeah, no, it's one of those weird, it is one of those weird things. Cause like the odds, each step of the way, the odds are so long against any of it actually working out. And we had just for people, cause Dave, I think a lot of people just think this, who haven't heard the stuff we said in the first season, um, you know, we'd read a hundred women for the part, many excellent actresses, famous people, and none of them just landed Wendy Rhodes for us through no fault of theirs. Right. They did really well. It just, they weren't Wendy Rhodes. And then you showed up in your living room and, you know, sitting on your chair, in your chair and you just were Wendy Rhodes. And then I remember Dave and I just saying, well, no matter what, we won't make the show, you know, and I, and, and the weird, one of the weird, like sort of inside baseball things is, I mean, we said to you before you came to New York, we basically said to you, you're our person. Like we're going to all get the network to agree, but you should know we're making the show with you. 
And, I, and we said that to you before your audition, you know, before your proper audition, we put our cards yeah. really on the table. Um, so it is great that it all, <laughs> that it all was able to work out this way. My, my, my manager was like, it's never good when they're only looking at one person. He, <laughs> really? He, like, he basically, oh yeah, he erased all that. Uh, you know, I was like, but they, you know, they've said that they really like me. And he was like, it's never a good situation when they're only testing one person. <laughs> That's funny. I was you like, know, like, all right, whatever. Well, when we, um, but, before we started reading actors for the role, I, I felt really good about the character. I was like, I think we did something really interesting with this character. And then you know, yeah. all these auditions came in and I, I started to think, you know, maybe, maybe we're just like off. Maybe we have to rewrite this because mm. nobody can kind of stick this. And then, and then as soon as you read it, I was like, no, we're good. Like she gets all of it where, you know, we don't have to retool. Oh. I was wondering what, what are some of the toughest scenes for you to play as Wendy? Mm. Well, I mean, obvious, I mean, the, the, I have two, I have two answers, you know, uh, uh, on an obvious level, the, the BDSM scenes are challenging and, you know, and require a lot of focus and overcoming self-consciousness and, and all of that. But, but generally actually when we, when we've done them and they're, you know, they're not that frequent, um, Paul and I lock into a really interesting place and they just happen. Um, I actually think in a lot of ways, the more tricky scenes are the long coaching scenes um, with uh, Axe and Taylor and or Tanner because they require so much mental focus and um, like a real alternation between um, like drive and hard energy and like receptivity. Like they always feel like a very careful map that I'm trying to chart. And, uh, you know, it, it just, it just feels like a subtle enterprise that requires a lot of concentration. Um, so I, I think those are the, the trickiest scenes, like the really, the extended ones, you know. Do you, or do you think you're, uh, as known now as Wendy Rhodes as Rachel Mankin, is it getting close now? Like, do you get do people mention Rachel uh, more to you on the street or Wendy now? Wendy, yeah. Oh, definitely. really? Yeah, and Tara. I mean, I, I, I of feel course. like those, you know, the ones that I've put in a lot of a lot of time time with, and you know, Mad Men has it's it's definitely still in the air and and in the culture, but. Um, the times have changed, you know, since that show ended and, and there's kind of like, we've, we've all moved on culturally and this show exists in the culture that we live in now. And, you know, it's yeah, top of it's, people's minds. Well, one thing is T Tara has such a different energy than when, you know, such a different energy in terms of on this show, you get to be like the biggest badass on the whole show. And on that show, your job <laughs> was to do the opposite in a way. <laughs> Kind of. Yeah. I mean, that show with Sons of Anarchy, that's just like a, it had such a strong cult uh, following and the people who were dedicated to it m miss it sorely. There's sure. There's like of a, course. Oh, yeah, like of a course. Vacuum for them. Yeah. Yeah. No, of course. That makes complete sense. Um, Dave, what else do we want to ask the great Maggie Siff, our dear friend? I mean, I could definitely just keep pumping with questions. So aside from billions, what, what would you like to play? What's out there that you haven't played? What kind of thing? It doesn't have to be specific, like from some famous play or something, but like what vibe, what type of a role? 
Oh, I mean, I think I'd love to do like a screwball comedy. I mean, I, I, I kind of wish I could do like a screwball comedy from the 40s. But, um, you know, I think like a really smart, swift um, comedy would be really fun. It's not something I get asked. Oh, yeah. You got to make a Coen, you got to make a Coen Brothers movie. You'd be amazing I mean, in a that- Coen Brothers movie. I would love to make a Coen Brothers movie. That's a great, that's a, yeah. I mean, something like that. I mean, I think, I think I like things that are stylish and a little bit stylized like that. Um, and uh, like, you know, a kind of heightened comedy like that would be, that would be fantastic. Great. Well, all right. We don't want to take up too much of your time on this recap show. Um, we miss you so much, Maggie. And uh, you too. it's great to be able to Zoom with you um, as we have been able to a few times, but it's not the same thing as getting to make the show together, hanging out. No, no. I hope we, I hope we can get back to it at some point soon. Yes. Well, there's lots more amazing stuff you do this season in the remaining episodes of the first half of the season. Uh, lots of stuff in store for Wendy Rhodes and Maggie Siff. You can't find Maggie on social media, so don't try just for the listeners. No, like I normally will try to plug the social media of the guest, but like it's not there. There's no social media for Maggie Smith. I've only come out of the cocoon so far. Right. All right, great. Thanks, Maggie. We'll talk to you really soon. Good seeing you, Maggie.